perhaps one of the greatest challenges to me personally in this Christian life, this spiritual journey, is how I live in the world but not of the world. I think the older I get, the more potent this question becomes to me. Do I look any different than the world around me? For years I have taught, and perhaps you've heard people use the illustration of legalism, liberty, and license, like a pendulum. Legalism, of course, being a system of do's and don'ts. If you read your Bible, if you go to church, if you pray, if you're a good Christian, you don't do these things, don't do those activities. And there's a certain comfort for a certain personality type in a list of do's and don'ts. The problem with legalism is it's a system that we think is going to make us spiritual or give us right standing before God, and it does not. The further problem, and perhaps the reason it's so insidious, is that legalism implicitly projects that list of do's and don'ts on other people. That if they would live this way, they would do that, they wouldn't do those things, they wouldn't be in the predicament they're in. On the other extreme we have licentiousness or license. License is the idea that it doesn't matter what I do, I'm saved, my salvation is secure, grace is free, mercy is continually expensed to me, so I can do pretty much whatever I do, and when I sin I can always get forgiveness. And then somewhere tucked in the middle is this idea of liberty. And we often joke about the only time we're in balance is we go from legalism to, for a few moments to liberty over to licentiousness. And I've used that illustration in my own experience and I've taught it innumerable times. And as I've rethought it and thought a lot about my spiritual journey, I think it's a really bad illustration. <laughs> because liberty is not the balance of license and legalism. That's nonsense. We give up a little bit of do and don't, and we bring in a little bit of our sin nature and, and, and rampant living and say, okay, now I'm in the middle. I'm not as legalistic as I could be. I'm not as licentious as I could be, and therefore I'm in balance. And as I've rethought that, and I don't have the precise answer, but I just don't think it's a really good illustration. I do think the tension is very prevalent. And if you're a growing Christian who is convicted of his or her sin, you feel guilt and shame from time to time. Set the psychological you know, excesses aside for a minute. You feel guilt and shame at time. You feel pride. You feel anger. You feel arrogance. You feel like you're living in sin sometimes. We're all over the gambit if, we'd be, if we're transparent, right? Is that what the Christian life is? This ongoing minefield of trying not to blow up the mind and make our way through Christianity unscathed and die and see Jesus. And the problem with Western Christianity, if I was to distill it in one sentence, it's are we in the world or of the world? Western civilization has provided tremendous opportunities, tremendous blessings, tremendous growth, tremendous success. And I mean that in a good sense, not an American sense. It's given us great opportunity. We should be very thankful people. We stand on lots of shoulders. But as believers in Jesus Christ, whether it's Williamson County or watching online or however a person accesses our messages, are we in the world or of the world? Christ admonishes us that we're to be in it but not of it. What in the world does that mean? And this is some, this is some fine line question in your mind. This is shaving theology very carefully. How do we live in the world but not of the world? Well, we're going through the seven churches of Revelation in this study. We come to the fourth church today, Sardis. We'll have three left, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea in our counterclockwise geographic tour of the seven churches of Asia. Sardis was, like most cities at the time, under Roman rule. We've talked about Roman rule involved garrisons typically, military presence, and then taxation. The taxation, of course, is exacted because you've got military presence. That taxation pays for the military. It also gives tribute to Caesar. Combined in that, of course, is when you are giving taxation, you're worshiping Caesar. Caesar isn't just the IRS. Caesar isn't just the federal government. Caesar is God. So for the Christian, the believer in that time period, to give tax to Caesar was to give tax to God. And so the struggle began. It's a wealthy city. It's located on the east-west commercial trade route in Lydia. So they have a lot of traffic, a lot of money, a lot of commerce. Excavations that continue to this day in Sardis and these so-called seven churches of Asia are, uh, continue to reinforce what we know from Scripture. 
A synagogue was discovered there, evidence of a Jewish haven for exiles, as well as a gymnasium, the Europeans called a school a gymnasium, a large school, as well as a church. It's, as with most of Asia, they worshipped idols. Idolatry was rampant at this time period. Uh, there was a temple of Artemis there, and probably built around the 4th century. It was the, f- the fourth largest complex of its kind. Uh, Lloyd talked about temple during Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, but this is another one. This one is an Ionic temple, and it's built to Artemis. Artemis is the Greek name. Diana is the Roman name, probably the same god. Some mythological students dispute that, but Diana would be the Greek uh, Roman name and Artemis the Greek name. In fact, if you hold your finger in Rome, uh, Revelation 9 and turn over to Acts 19 for just a moment. Acts 19. You may recall the story in Acts 19 where Paul has gone to Ephesus. He's sharing the gospel. He's going to synagogues first, and then he moves on elsewhere. And his time in Ephesus is a very busy time. The record is interesting um, what happens there. But he meets up with the artisans of Artemis. These artisans made silver and other kinds of idols. And Demetrius, we might think of him as sort of a um, a franchise. Demetrius owns a lot of small businesses that make idols. And the confrontation is picked up in chapter 19, verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. So he's, he's making these shrines, and we'll talk about in a moment what happens with Revelation. But here the idea is he's got a lot of people that are making artwork for him that he's then selling these small idols in different shape, sizes, and forms. Verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. Where are the seven churches in Revelation? Asia. And almost all the church of Asia. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people who say gods made with hands are no gods at all. Which taken on its own substance is a pretty ludicrous sentence, isn't it? Not only is there danger that our trade, this trade of ours could fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And a riot breaks out not long after that. Back to Revelation chapter 3. Sardis is a city with a temple to Artemis. If we went back and looked at the missionary journeys, we know Paul goes from Jerusalem, Judea, or most part of the earth. So more than likely these beachheads, if, if he didn't plant them, his disciples planted them. Obviously no, John's involved with these as well. But the message of the gospel has certainly penetrated this far. Uh, Artemis was the daughter of Zeus and Leto. She had a twin sister named Apollo. Um, she watched over men and animals. In fact, we, we think we're pretty sophisticated today because we have humane treatment of livestock. If you're into all this stuff about organic and NGO and what you eat and don't eat, and if you're a really you know, good Christian and you're a vegan, God bless you. you know. The hallelujah diet, God bless you, enjoy it. You, know. you can pray for me and my carnivore appetite, but nevertheless... Um, that she had a whole system of how you kill animals. It was supposed to be humane, striking nothing new. Nothing new. It's always been around. Uh, she was also a goddess of fertility, and her caretakers had to be eunuchs, and the priestesses must have been virgins to attend this temple complex. If you go down to Nashville and see the um, facsimile copy of the the Parthenon. Why did we build the Parthenon in Nashville? I would love to ask the fathers why they built that, but nevertheless, let's worship some Greek gods while we're down there. Anyway, um, this Ionic, Doric, Corinthian capitals, if you study that in architectural or art, you see some of the, the carryover in these complexes. But she was a fertility goddess. And as such, when Demetrius is confronted by Paul the Apostle, whether they were silver figurines or shrines you could put in your home, or think of a custom home having like an actual worship center if you had the money and desire. And so this is no small business for Ephesus. Translate, it's no small business in Sardis either, because there's a big temple there to Artemis. 
Uh, this temple complex was also the architect who designed the one that we're reading about in Revelation was also named Demetrius. Now it's a common Greek name, but it is intriguing that Demetrius is sort of this, this uh, overlord of the silversmith trade in Ephesus and the man who designed the complex that they worshipped in Sardis was also named Demetrius. Be that as it may. Among the discoveries there they've also found a Christian church building not far from the temple complex. Archaeological proof continues to support Scripture. Very, very rarely does it call Scripture into question, which is always interesting. Not that we need it, but it's nice to have it. Uh, the Gospel had gone to Sardis, had gone through the Apostles' teaching had gone through there. Um, many scholars would argue that that church was active until the mid or late 14th century. So the message that John gave must have had some traction with them. Andrew Tate writes, The people of Sardis were idolaters. They worshipped the mother goddess Sibylle. Her worship, debasing involving orgies at festivals held in her honor. Sins of the darkest impurity were committed on those occasions. And when we think of a small community of Christians rescued from such, living in the midst of the grossest depravity, it may be wondered that the few members of the church at Sardis were not drawn away altogether and swallowed up in the great vortex. So you've got this context of Artemis complex, a small church, a disenfranchised synagogue of Jewish exiles, and the gospel has come. And Christ is now speaking to his church in Sardis. And I would use the theme, the big picture, the idea for you and me, how much am I in the world or of the world? Because that's where Sardis is camped, among a rife population of idolatry, immorality, and Jewish exiles who are all giving worship to Caesar. Well, let's look at the text, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, Christ's condemnation of the church of Sardis to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Christ speaks, first of all, I know your deeds. John Walbert wrote, to the omniscient Lord, nothing is hid from his searching gaze. To the omniscient Lord, nothing is hid from his searching gaze. I remember as a boy somewhere, I don't know how old I was, but I remember being taught that God sees everything. Were you taught that when you were a kid? God sees everything you do. And I remember being terrified of the notion that God sees everything as a kid. He knows everything I do. When our children were much younger and Cindy and I were trying to parent them and teach them to be good people and love Jesus and so forth, uh, once in a while, uh, of course, you, most of you, if you have more than one child, you have a compliant kid who's got a real tender heart, and when he or she sins, they come to you and they go, I'm so sorry, Mommy, I'm so sorry, Daddy, will you forgive me? And you think you're great parents. <laughs> and then you get number two, three, four, five, or whatever, and then you realize you're a horrible parent. And, um, <laughs> and I remember with... Uh, all of our children praying that, that God would catch them, that you know, they would be convicted of sin. And I mean, we could have smoking gun videotape corroborating evidence and they would still lie, right? <laughs> I remember over one child in particular praying with my hands on that child's back saying, Dear Jesus, help us find out if so-and-so is telling the truth. You see everything. You know what they've done. Mommy and Daddy want to be great parents and teach them to love Jesus and be truth tellers and then we just lay it on as thick as possible <laughs> and convict them until they tell the truth. If Mommy and Daddy are wrong, let us be wrong, but we know that you will help this child see that they're a sinner, you know, and then you walk out of the room. It's like, that kid's awake all night long. They're in counseling today probably. I'm somewhat embarrassed to say it was probably a decade after that that one day it dawned on me, and you're ahead of me already, he doesn't just see everything we do, he knows everything we think. It's not just that he omnisciently sees our actions, sinful or not, he knows our heart, he knows our thoughts. And most of us in this room, not all, but many of us in this room, are pretty sophisticated. Our sin life is under the chest cavity and between our temples. We don't act out on it as much as we coddle it in our memory, in our mind, in our hearts as we go to sleep or as we daydream or as we wonder, right? 
None of us in this room would stand up and say, I didn't sin today. I hope you wouldn't. Because it's deep in the recesses and the folds of our heart. It's wicked, it's deceitful. Our mind is twisted and perverted and conflicted and we're tormented and pulled and pushed and we're self-righteous and we're angry and we're afraid and we act out and we do things we're embarrassed and we think things we don't want to think. It's not like we create scenarios to make ourselves sin. God not only sees all that we do, He knows all that we think. It can be chilling on the one hand. On the other, a proper perspective, not, li not licentiousness, not liberty, not legalism, liberty, not legalism or licentiousness, but liberty would say, as a maturing, growing, developing Christian who's becoming more like Jesus Christ. Am I sensitive to it? Am I aware of it? Do I repent quickly? Do I acknowledge and embrace it soon? That's what he wants. He does not hold a hammer over your head saying, I got you again. Bam. He says, I love you still. Confess. Repent. Come back to me. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm right here. I know your deeds. It's an unusual condemnation in Revelation 3.1 that you have a name and that you are alive, but you're dead. Once Sardis had a reputation of being an active, vital gospel church, we might say. Now, we don't know the precise details of the church, but we can make some pretty good conclusions. Um, they were at one time spiritually alive, and now Christ is saying you're basically spiritually dead. You look active, but you're dead. When perhaps you're like me, when you drive around parts of town, you see some pretty magnificent church buildings. There are some that I drive by and I oogle in awe. I mean, I go, that is just such a beautiful church. And then my, my sinful heart goes to, why do the liberals have all the beautiful churches? <laughs> there were men and women who built those churches two, three decades ago that loved Christ. They loved this word. They believed it. They probably even studied it. And they gave money and sweat and brow and tear and labor and they built a building and a church. And over the decades it went liberal. I'm not saying all denominations wholesale are liberal. I'm saying any church that doesn't teach from the foundation of the Word of God is off track. Now, we'll be careful. Because I can drive by those churches and I can covet is there such a thing as a sanctified coveting? <laughs> Dear Lord, let them go out of business so we can have their building for a dollar. I mean, is, is that, can, you, can you pray that prayer? I mean, and you drive by and go, oh, it's such a beautiful church. And you know what you also find in those big churches? They're busy. I mean, the cars, the kids' programs, the activities, the banners, it's like a parade. And hear me carefully, I'm not pointing out a church, but would Christ say you're alive but you're spiritually dead? Now, in a very convoluted way, you can drive by the corner of Franklin and Concord Road, and you can say, our church is a barn. And we can be proud of that barn. Why, I don't know, but we could be. We could say, look, we're just the opposite of that. I don't care what the facility looks like. Are we teaching that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he came back from the dead to prove that he had power over, over death, that He offers the free gift of salvation to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone, period. And we want to know the mind of God, the Word of God, based on what He says about Himself, God's Word, God's Spirit, along with God's people to make this thing work, because you cannot do it alone. You cannot do it alone. And it doesn't matter if we're in a barn or a beautiful building, with irony of irony, Doric or Corinthian or Ionic capitals in front of the building holding up the part of the church are meeting in a concrete Parthenon in downtown Nashville. The church isn't a structure. We can be active and busy, and we can be spiritually dead. And so he tells them, you have a name. You look like you're alive. By my assessment, you're dead. William Barclay writes, the church is in danger of death when it begins to worship the past, when it is more concerned with forms than life, What's he saying there? When we always do things a certain way, we have form, we have ritual, and I would say denominationalism. 
traditionalism. When you worship the form, you're off kilter. He continues, when it loves systems more than it loves Jesus, when it's more concerned with the material than with spiritual things. If we're in the world but not of the world, the one question that you and I have got to ask is what does Christ think of his church? Now what do I think of it? How about Michael, Bill, Rob, Lloyd thinks of it? What does Christ think of his church? What does Christ think of you as part of his church? Are you spiritually alive or are you spiritually dead? He warns in verses 2 and 3, wake up, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember that you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. He condemns them as alive but dead. But here he says implicitly there are a few who still remain. The first verb in our structure of importance is remember. It's a frequent admonition in Scripture. Remember. Remember we've talked a couple weeks ago about you know, be strong and take courage. You don't tell someone who's afraid and discouraged to be strong and take courage. You tell someone who's discouraged, who's, who's fearful, if they have courage, then they'd be told have courage, right? Why does Scripture say remember so often? Why does Scripture say don't forget so often? Because we don't remember. Because we forget. So I was talking to a couple, Cindy and I were just recently about to send their first child off to college. And um, they got four kids, and this is their 18-year-old going off to school. And the poor mom, was you could just see it all over her. Her baby was going to college, and she was just dying a thousand deaths. And we've been there. We know what it's like. It's, it's miserable and fun and joyful. And you take your child off and turn them over to the wolves. It's just, and, and you know, when every parent does this, it's like, one more thing, one more thing, i got to tell you this. And it culminates when you take them, if you take them out of state, to a campus and drop them in a dorm. You make five trips to Walmart. You know, it's one more thing you got to do. It's that last thing you got to tie a bow on it and leave your baby in some evil pagan city and drive away and cry all the way home. It's so much fun. I told this young woman not that she asked me or, or that she wanted my advice, but I said, I want to make one suggestion. Don't call your son until he calls you. And do not go visit him unless there's a parent's day. Let him come home at his break it's fall or Christmas. And she, 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 she went white. So I couldn't do that. I said, yes, you can. What's going on in her heart? I got one more thing. Oh, I forgot to tell him this. Remember this. I forgot. Now, if you're feeling that pressure right now with your child, hold that tension for just a second. That's how your father, carefully understand my analogy, is concerned for you and me. Don't forget. Remember. One more thing. Are you listening to me? You look alive. You're spiritually dead. Pay attention. Remember, as he continues, remember what you've received and what you've heard, what you embraced and what you internalized. Not just that you heard it and kind of recognized the noise, but you embraced it. Remember what you've received and what you've heard. What had they received and what had they heard? Number one, the gospel. Christ lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead. Any and all who trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation are given a free gift of eternal life and their sins are forgiven. First and foremost, they heard the gospel. What else had they received and heard? They received and heard the apostolic teachings about the Christ. Now, there's some romance for me, and, and really it's, it's ill-suited, but there's a romance thinking about the apostles teaching me or Paul being my pastor or, you know, something like, or John being the pastor. Or even if we want to look at, you know, Polycarp being the bishop. There's some romance to that. But we need to erase that romance because the process of the teaching of the apostles is given in what we're called the New Testament. And the disciples that the apostles made, that Paul makes, that Timothy makes, that the evidence of these churches in Asia took on was tribute to the fact that they were making disciples of all ethnos. In fact, that's something else they received and heard, the Great Commission. It's not just about Sardis, it's about making disciples of all ethnos, all nations. They received and heard that Christ would return. They received and heard a lot of things. Remember, don't forget, 
you didn't hear Lloyd's message on Ephesus, I encourage you to go back and listen to it or watch it online. There's that sense in which we need to go back to what we did. What was it about that that stirred in us, that the love was there, that you, you wanted to read Scripture, you wanted to hang with Christians, you wanted to be involved, you wanted to engage, and if you didn't, that raises another question, why not? Where is that? If Ephesus lost their first love, Sardis lost their first mission, and they forgot who they were as a church. Thirdly, the primary verb, remember, receive, and heard. Third, keep can also be rendered observe and repent. Keep and repent. You were told these things. Go back to them. Do them again. Cindy and I don't do marriage counseling anymore. There are people that are far, far better skilled and trained in doing it than we ever were. But we used to always encourage, especially couples who've been married a few years and were starting to grow distant, we'd ask them, what did you do when you were young and dating and first year of marriage? And they would opine and tell stories about you know, cooking meals together or taking walks in the park or whatever it was. They were simple things. Most of them were not expensive, elaborate five-star vacations. They were simple things they did together as a couple. And you can watch at a table conversation this couple that might be struggling a little bit sort of lighten up and smile at each other. Remember when we used to do... I don't understand all I know. Cindy and I cooked when we dated and courted. And to this day, one of the most romantic things is if I initiate, let's cook a meal together in the kitchen, and we are in the kitchen cooking and cleaning and working together. I don't get it, but there's something that pulls us back to where it started. What was it for you? More important, what's it for you spiritually? Remember, you've received it, you've heard it, keep it, and repent. We're told again and again, remember, don't forget, you forgot how, what that happened when you came to Christ. You forgot what it felt like to be forgiven. You forgot the, the burden that was lifted when your shame was removed. Now how do you turn, go back to there? Well, you've got to remember what you received, what you've heard, what you embraced. Now hang on to it. Pay attention to it, he's saying. Repent. Maybe we can paraphrase it simply. Wake up and obey what you know. Wake up and obey what you know. If Sardis does not repent, Christ's judgment is coming like a thief. Now the phrase like a thief is used a couple of different ways. I would say here it's used with something that's going to happen when they're unaware. It's going to happen when they think they're safe, but they're not. Many of us perhaps in this room have an alarm system on your home. Uh, maybe you have a safe in your home for documents. Maybe you have a fire safe for your will or whatever, things like that. Most people will get those at some point in your life. And we think it's safe because we've got the alarm code on and things are locked away in the fire safe. So our will and passports, whatever you stick in there, are safe. Um, the idea here is something's going to happen very quickly that you're not going to see coming. More than likely for Sardis it would have been Cyrus or it would have been the Athenians who came in and destroyed their city in a very short order. It'd be like saying to Americans, remember 9-11? It could happen tomorrow. And we all know, yeah, it could happen tomorrow. It could happen today. Some new way, some clever way that we're not set up to protect and secure and monitor, it could happen. A tragedy could happen again. Pearl Harbor, we never thought about a Pearl Harbor. Never thought about a 9-11. So these things could happen. And that's the sense in which he's saying. I am struck by how many Christians in social media is a blessing and a curse, and I think it's tipping more on the curse side of things these days, of how we err and pontificate our positions. I do, maybe some of you do, um, social media, mainstream media, but there's so much fear about the election. There's so much anger and emotion about what's happening to our country. There's a subtle fear of terrorism and ISIS and the subtle fear of the economy and the overarching fear, a lot of us who are older, about health care. Talking to a friend of mine who's a counselor in recent days, and he said, you know, I'm talking to a lot of folks that they're not worried about death because they know where they're going, but they're worried about their 60s and 70s. And I, I get this. What's my health going to be like? Will Cindy have to care for me? Will I have to care for her? What if one of us gets dementia, Alzheimer's, ALS? a stroke, and we can't speak or drive again. It's not the dying that we're afraid of, right? It's this little decade of uncertainty that we have this false marker that when I get that age, then something bad might happen to me. Okay, today. Another cheery Michael Easley message. 
<laughs> Could happen quickly. You don't think about this when you're young. I remember a number of things. Number one, I remember Vietnam, Depression, World War II. I think back on times in our history when things seemed irrecoverable, unredeemable. Those of you who experienced the Depression or your parents or, grand, or grandparents, those of you who remember World War II, your grandparents tell you the stories. I hope you ask them. As generations dying, in about eight to ten years, all those people will be dead. Very few remain. And we are the worst country in the world about our history. We're, think about this. We're the youngest country in the world. America is. We're the baby. We're a toddler coming into adolescence. We don't know one thing about our history. And you wonder why Middle Eastern cultures can fight so tenaciously and live impoverished and never give up because they know their history. Essential difference. So we worry about all these things. And I go back, Christians, I've said this many, to you many times before, Christians in the Depression, Christians in World War II, Christians in Vietnam, they, did they wring their hands and worry? Sure. Did they anticipate afterwards things would recover? No. Does that mean things are going to recover after the next election or the next election? Or election? I don't know. But what I do know, secondly, is Christ is sovereign and he's not walking heaven's floor, wringing his hands, worrying about who's going to be in the White House. He's not wringing his hands, worrying about ISIS. He has no sleepless nights anyway, but he has no sleepless night over fill in the blank. Because he is the sovereign over the universe that he created and that he sustained, and if you're a believer, that he called by name. He is your king, not the person, man or woman, who will end up in the White House. They are Caesar. They are Caesar. They're the skin of a king. They're not God. So I remember history a little bit. I remember Christ as sovereign. And I remember this is his church, not ours. Oh, sure, we're part of it. I hope you're part of fellowship. If not, be a part of some good church. But it's not my church. Now we can say my church because we're part of it and it's my friends and my identity. You should say that, but understand what I'm differentiating. This is his church. Isn't it striking that Christ said, make disciples of all nations and I will build my church. And most every church in America is building churches hoping somebody else is going to make disciples. I will build my church. You, me, make disciples of all nations. And it would seem to follow if we're making disciples, the church will, in some certain terms, take care of itself. If we're doing what Christ commanded, make disciples, he said, I'm going to build my church. Think about that the next time we're building a program. Well, the few are mentioned in verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. Literally, the word people in your margin probably has literally names, which is a little more intimate. You have a few names. I, I know them by name. There's a handful I can name off these folks that are still faithful and they're worthy. Um, the inscription found, there was an inscription found in Asia Minor that warned that you couldn't worship gods in these temple complexes with soiled, dirty garments. Now, it might be a bit of conjecture, but it's interesting to me that one of the things Sardis is known for in this east-west commercial trade route was fabric and dye. If you know anything about merchandising and clothing, you go to the Dallas market. A lot of people go to Dallas and they, they pre-order their material, their fabrics, their clothing line, whatever it is. They go to market, so to speak. Some go to Atlanta, go to market. When you go to market, you see lots of fabric, lots of color. The new fashions coming out, the new spring, fall, summer fashions, where they are, right? Sardis was that place. Now think about that. If you're known for your fabric and dyeing expertise, and he says, some of you have not yet soiled your garment. I don't want you stained and dyed. I want you white. I want you pure. A picture of sinlessness. A picture of purity, of forgiveness. Um, these fabrics were a metaphor for how you went to worship. Why does the Western, we don't do it here, but 
uh, in, in the former time, we all put our best Sunday clothes on. A few of you still wear suits. Not that you should or shouldn't, but there was sort of a thing. You put your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes on. You put on a suit and tie. You shine shoes, right? Why did we do that? A lot of imagery here. Fascinating study of the righteous deeds of the saints comes into this passage. What does it mean? They will walk with me, those who haven't soiled their garments, for they're worthy. Part of this is a challenge to, to decipher because in Christ we're to do righteous deeds. But if we do the right thing for the wrong reason, it doesn't mean anything. And that's where you're starting to parse intentions and motivations. And I don't know how to do this. I'll be very candid. I don't know how. I, I've often told you I've never had a pure motive in my life because my heart is wicked and deceitful as is my brain. But in Christ, as we live faithfully, there are things we can do in righteousness. I don't know how to identify those. And the moment I do, I think I'm a legalist. Does it make sense to anybody but me? How do I do it? Not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And that's where our intimacy with Christ is more important than the to-dos. Is walking close to Him, then hopefully what we do in the flesh is sanctified by Christ in the spirit. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way, the fidelity of our character and our obedient service can be seen in our actions. The fidelity of our character and the obedient service can be seen in what we do. Paraphrase. If I've got the right character and integrity and I do the right thing, then perhaps that's a good action. Even that falls a little flat. Let's continue. Verse 5 and 6, the promise, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his, book from the book of, his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Threefold promise here. The first promise is the one who overcomes will be robed in white garments. White represents holy, not soiled by sin. I want to show you two passages. Whenever I officiate a wedding, I always use these two passages. And a question I present in a wedding ceremony is why I point to the bride's dress. Why does she wear such a beautiful, expensive ornate white dress. Is there a Western tradition that when you get married in America you've got to go spend you know, at least several thousand dollars on a dress for a one-day event and then hang it in a closet? What's this about? Obviously the industry is good, but what's it about? Is it she's pure? She's a virgin? What's it about? Let me show you what Scripture says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that, reason, why did he do that? So that, why did Christ die for the church? The reason, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. What's Paul saying here? The reason the bride wears white you see, we take a lot of Western tradition from this book and don't even know it. The reason she wears white is not to present herself as this pure, holy, unadulterated bride. The reason she wears white, it's a picture of what Christ has done for his own church. Continues in Revelation, the book we've been studying, Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Notice the, notice the verbal move. The bride made herself ready. But watch. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of or deeds of the saints. So here's the marriage supper. The groom is who? Who's the groom? Christ. The bride is the church. He gave himself up for the church so that he could sanctify her to present her to himself with no spot nor wrinkle or any such thing. And Revelation says the same thing. To present her clean, undefiled, not soiled. For the fine linen that she's clothed in is the righteous acts of the saints. Somehow your and my actions, not legalistic, not licentious, in liberty and maturity, somehow that is used for our good. I don't understand all I know. 
and I can't always parse. In fact, I think more than likely we don't know when we're doing righteous acts and righteous deeds. I don't think we're going to be the one to evaluate that. He is. And that absolves me of my schizophrenia, worry, and fear about why I do the right thing in the right way sometimes. Because if he doesn't use it, it doesn't matter how good it or bad it is, right? Well, the second blessing, uh, the second promise is a relationship with Christ. The book of life raises some questions we can't precisely answer. <clears throat> we do know that um, Sardis was a part of the Persian regime at one time, and Greeks, Lucian, and so forth. And one of the practices they did hold in antiquity was if you were a citizen, your name was written in a book, like a registry. If you committed a crime of a capital nature, you were taken out of the book. If you died, you were taken out of the book. Think of it in terms today, if you're a felon, you don't get to vote. When you die, you're taken off the tax rolls, praise God. But other than that, your name's on the roll, your name's on the census, on the registry, on the tax base, the census of that city or town. So what I think he's saying here is um, you can't be taken off the registry like they were familiar with in their nomenclature of their time. Third, the faithful are assured that Christ will confess them before the Father and His angels. A confession is much more than just swearing an oath or giving a deposition or going in front of a court of a judge or a jury trial. Uh, the confessional here is an envision Jesus Christ with you behind Him, standing in front of God the Father with the angelic host saying, I died for Michael, for Paul, for Bill, for Lloyd, for Susan, for Scott, for James, for Rob. I died for him, her. I'm confessing that my righteous acts, Jesus says, on the cross of Calvary, what I have done for them lets them enter heaven. And they're called by my name, therefore they're called by your name, and they're your children. That's the confessional. It's a, it's a grandeur type thing that he's giving us. Well, let me try to put this together with a couple of observations. Number one, I would want you to camp on this idea that Christ knows your deeds and He knows your thoughts. He knows my deeds and He knows my thoughts. Maybe you need some alone time just with that notion that He knows your deeds and He knows your thoughts. He's not angry at you. He didn't hate you because of the things you think or do. Contrary, if you're a child of the King, He loves you. Just like your son or daughter can break your heart and make you mad and make all sorts of bad decisions, you still love them. You die for them. You die for your kids, even when they drive you crazy, right? That's a sinful human parent. Think about a perfect fatherly parent. He loves us in ways we can't articulate. We, we, we'll never have language to adequately express that Christ died for sinners while we were yet in our sin. He demonstrated his own love toward us. Secondly, wake up and remember. Wake up and remember. Go back to that place where you came to Christ. Remember what you have heard, what you received. Remember the gospel. Remember forgiveness. Remember his love. Remember his patience. Isn't it a good thing he doesn't expect us to be a full-grown, mature Christian overnight? Isn't it a great, liberating thing that he's patient with you and me to grow, whether you're a teenager or you're a senior citizen, whatever age that's supposed to be now? I'm relieved by that. As I've said many times, my professor, Dr. Howard Hendricks, often said, if you were never more ready for heaven than the day you were saved, why are you still here? He's transforming us into something we're not. And third, the faithful are assured of a relationship. I'm asked the band to come back out. The faithful are assured of a relationship. And the relationship is what it's all about. It's about knowing Christ and following Him. Legalism and licentiousness will always lead to discouragement and frustration and confusion and sin patterns that we don't break. To live liberty, I would argue, means to get out of that pendulum and say, how do I follow Him faithfully? Well, we've got the antidote here on everything about you. Know your deeds and your thoughts. Remember. Wake up. Remember what I taught you. Remember the gospel. Remember you're forgiven. Remember I love you. Remember I care about you. Go back to those things. Go back to the foundation. Remember, remember you've forgotten what I did for you. And as you follow me faithfully, I'll take care of you now and forever. He's a good father. 
He's a good, good father. And we're to be faithful children. I'll ask you to stand as we sing.
together. God, thank you that we can sing these words, these true words. You are the good and perfect Father. Your love is relentless. It's never failing. And God, thank you for it. We stand as a people changed by your love, your mercy, and your grace. And we honor you with these melodies lifted up and the gathering of your people together. God, we are a grateful, grateful people. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. We're glad you were with us this weekend. You're dismissed. <laughs>